0: Hey, we're going to wrap up this series that we've been in uh, the last couple of weeks, and what we've done over the last three weeks, and going into today is just ask some questions, and uh, common questions that we all ask. Why questions? You know, we talked about why does sometimes does it feel like God is just not close? Why does it feel like uh, sometimes we just can't feel God's presence? We talked about that, and maybe some possible biblical causes of that. We talked about why does it seem like sometimes God doesn't answer my prayer and we look at scripture and we look at all these great men of God and these great women of God and they prayed and the sun stood still and people were healed and and then sometimes when we pray why it just seems like God is distant and and kind of doesn't answer so we talked about that last week Um, we talked about another why question this week we're going to ask this question last week we talked about why do why do bad things happen to good people? And sometimes it's our fault, sometimes we're just part of a broken world, and we talked about the possible reasons for that. This week we're going to ask this question, is, why would God want to use me? And maybe we could even ask that question a little in a little bit different way, and maybe for some of you, the question isn't so much, why would God want to use me, is, does God even want to use me? Does God really want to use me? Am I here for a reason? Am I here for a purpose? Is there something bigger going on than meets the eye? And here's what I want you to remember today, right off, right when we start. If you don't remember anything else that I've said, I want you to remember this. That I believe biblically, scripturally, in the way that Jesus taught and with everything in my heart. That you and I are here for a very specific reason. That God wants to work in you and through you to do something significant. Did you catch that? I believe that with everything in me, that you are here for a reason, that God wants to do something in you and through you that is significant. You know what? When I talk about this and when we talk about this, I think there's so many of us that are Christians or maybe non-Christians. There's a little bit of pushback in it. And we're kind of like, well, not everybody has to do something great, and not everybody has to be blah, blah, blah. And I understand what you're saying, but you are here for a reason. And you are here to do something significant. It doesn't mean that you're going to be famous. It doesn't mean that everywhere you go, people are necessarily going to know you, but you're here for a purpose. You are not here by mistake. To say that you are here not to do something significant, to have the attitude that you're just One of a couple million, and you're just average, and God just kind of created you, and you're here to just kind of exist, and you're here to just kind of get from this day to the next, is saying this. It's saying that when God created you, that it was just another creation. And it's kind of like slapping God in the face. And you're saying, well, God created me, but it was just kind of a side note. And he said, you know what? I'm going to create this guy. His name's going to be Eric Yoder, and he's just going to just another creation, another person out the door, and I'm going to move on to someone else. And it actually contradicts everything that Scripture teaches us. Scripture teaches this, is that God knew you and thought about you before you were ever formed. That God had a plan for you before you were ever conceived. That when you were still inside of your mother's womb, literally inside of your mother's womb, just a little speck that God said, this is my creation. This is my masterpiece. I'm creating her, I'm creating him, and I want him or I want her to do something significant to change the world. I want him or her to do something significant for my kingdom. And so before we even get into this, first of all, what I want to do is sell you on this fact that God does want to use you. And, in fact, not only does God want to, he will if you allow him to. I don't know about you, but that makes me excited. Because I don't want to live 60, 70, 80, 90 years on this earth and wonder why I'm here. I don't want to get to the end of my life and look back and say, man, you know, I lived 80 years, it was good, but I'm not really sure why God placed me here. And listen, I don't think you're going to wake up one day and you're going to turn 30 one day or you're going to turn 50 one day or 25 one day. And you're going to say, now I know exactly, precisely what God wants me to do. But I am saying this, is he did not place you here. He did not put you on earth to just exist. He did not place you on earth to just suck air and blow air and to consume. He put you here for a reason. And he puts you here to contribute. He puts you here because I believe with everything in my heart that he wants to do something in you and through you that is significant. Here's this flip side of this. And here's where I think we get tripped up and we don't recognize this. Is that you have an enemy. And I have an enemy. A spiritual enemy. A very real enemy spiritual enemy that would love to tell us different that would love to lull us into what i call a lazy boy life where we just get back in the recliner where we go to work and we and we make money to buy us stuff and we just kind of exist and i'm not saying any of that is wrong but we just you know what i'm saying we just kind of life is like we're in a recliner and we're laying in a recliner and We're just kind of coexisting. We're just kind of making it from day to day. And our enemy loves it. You may even go to church every Sunday. You may raise your hands. You may even tell me at the end of the service, great message, pastor. And then you walk out the door, and it's right back to life as normal. It's right back to a life that really has no real direction. It's back to a life where we just live from day to day, it's back to a life where we're not really making a significant difference in the world around us. And listen to me, our enemy loves it. He loves it. In fact, if, I, I believe this. I think if our enemy can't get us to drop Christianity altogether, you know what his next goal is? Is to live mediocre Christianity. It's to be just lukewarm. Is to buy into the lie that we're just one of a couple million of a couple million and that when God created me and when God created you, that there was no real plan. That God was just up to what he does, and he just was kicking out another baby. And I'm telling you that scripture tells us differently that you're here to contribute, that you're here to make a difference, that you are here in fact to be used by your creator in a very significant way. And we buy, we buy into all of these lies, we buy into all of these excuses of why God can't use me or I couldn't do that or why I couldn't go there or why I couldn't lead that or whatever it might be. You know, I don't know my bible like this guy over here. I haven't memorized half of the scripture like this guy over here. When I pray, I stumble and I I'm not good at speaking to people and And it could be all kinds of, or I'm just not good with people, or I don't like people. You know, whatever it could be. It could be, you know what, there's things in my past that if people found out, or if God knew, he would never ask me. Or if God really understood the depth of my sin and the things I struggle with, why would he ever want to use me? And I'm just telling you, God knows all of that. It's all under the blood. It's all washed by his grace. We're going to look at some stories today of who does God choose to use. And these stories, they ought to encourage us. They do me. And I read these stories, and I think, man, if God could have used that guy, if God could use that guy, he can use any of us. If God can use him to do amazing things, to make a significant contribution, then he can use me, and he can use you as well. want to kind of lay our foundation here by looking at this first couple of verses that's in your outline it's the story of Gideon and you guys know who Gideon is he was a prophet and as the story goes Gideon did some amazing things and it's one of one of my favorite stories in all of scripture but in this setting Gideon comes on the scene and the and God's people were being ruled and overtaken by the Midianites and they were literally they were literally poverty-stricken poverty, poverty stricken as a nation. They barely had enough to eat. They barely had enough clothing. They barely had enough to survive because the, these people came in, and they had hordes of animals, hordes of camels, and they were destroying the land, literally. They were taking over this, thing, this whole thing, and God calls Gideon out of this. And here's what's interesting. It was when God shows up on the scene, Gideon is literally hiding in a wine press or in a cave threshing grain. So here's Gideon hiding away from his enemies, and you wouldn't think of Gideon as a mighty warrior or someone that great. He's hiding in a cave, doesn't want to face anybody, is literally doubting everything about God. God shows up on the scene, sends an angel, and it's not in your outline, but in verse 11 I think it is. Here's what the angel says at the end of the verse. He says, the Lord is with you. He's speaking to Gideon, hiding in a cave, questioning everything. He says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And that's almost humorous. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And they begin to have this conversation, and we pick it up in verse 14. Well, what happens then is Gideon talks to this angel and says, no, wait a minute. How can the Lord be with me if all of this stuff is happening to our nation? And he almost kind of mocks the angel and he says, well, wait a minute. If God is with us, if I'm a mighty warrior and we're God's chosen people, then why is this happening? Why are we in poverty? Why do I have to hide in a cave for my own to save my own life, to thresh grain so we have something to eat? And then in verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go into strength that you have. Catch that phrase. In other words, you already have what you need to do what I'm going to ask you to do. Go in the strength that you have or you already have. Go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of, the, out of Midian's hand. Am I, God, the Lord, am I not sending you? I'm sending you. Verse 15. But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon says, now wait a minute. How can I save Israel? And then here comes his excuses, which are often just like yours and often just like mine. How can I save Israel? How can I do that? How could you ask me to do that? How could I go there? How could I ever do what you're asking me to do? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Throws out all these excuses. Here's what I want you to do, and I know this is weird for our church. I want you to touch someone beside you, and I want to say, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior, and say it like you mean it. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Would you do that to your neighbor? I can't hear you guys. Or if it's a lady, you could say, the Lord is with you, mighty princess. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. And it don't matter if you come from the weakest family. It doesn't, come, doesn't matter if, you come, if you're the weakest in your family or you're the least in your family or you've accomplished the least out of all of your peers. God says, wait a minute. I don't even look at that. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. He names them before he ever becomes a warrior. And he says, go with what you already have. Not what I'm going to give you, but what you already have. So let's ask this question. Let's ask this question. Who does God use most often when he does something significant? Who does God use most often when he does something significant? We pick up a story in Exodus four in verse ten, but kind of the backstory to this is an amazing story. And you guys know what the story is, It's the story of Moses. And Moses is out in the desert, right? And he's just kind of a guy. And i probably up to this point, I don't know if Moses has any idea that he's gonna become one of the primary primary characters in the story of God, in the story of the Old Testament. He's out in the desert tending sheep, and all of a sudden he looks off in the distance and he sees a burning bush. That Who knows if it got his attention or not right away, but I would imagine for us, we would be like, wow, there's a fire over there. And we'd kind of go on with the business, and a couple of minutes later, he looks back, and there's still one lone bush. It's still burning. And he's like, what? What is the deal? And he starts paying attention, and over a period of time, it's like this this bush never burns up. It just continues to burn. He's like... I've got to go check this out. So he walks over to the bush, and he checks out the bush. And out of this burning bush, God speaks to him. And he gives him his assignment for life. And he says, here's what I want you to do. You're my man. And I want you to go back, and I want you to deliver my people out of the hands of the Egyptians. And you're going to go wander in the desert. He doesn't maybe tell them all the details, but he gives them this huge assignment but i want you to remember this it's a bush speaking to moses right it's not like a dream that's like i'm not sure if that was god it wasn't like well i have this little sense that god wants me to do this but i'm not sure it's god it's a burning bush for crying out loud and god's voice is coming out of it and then we know the story and they have this argument back and forth and moses is like well i can't do it and why would you do, do that for me? And, and God says, okay. And they have this back and forth. And God says, well, listen, I'm just going to show you some things. The staff that's in your hand, throw it on the ground. Moses throws his staff on the ground. And what does it do? It turns into a snake. And but says Moses starts running from it. God says, no, wait a minute. Just pick it up by the tail. And he picks it up by the tail. And it turns back into a staff. And imagine God is thinking, no, I talked to you from a burning bush. You still won't get on board. I turned your staff into a snake, and you still won't get on board. Moses is still arguing. He says, no, wait a minute. What if I go to them, and they don't believe me? And God says, well, okay, I'll I'll do something else. He says, take your hand and stick it inside your pocket. Moses sticks his hand in his pocket, and he pulls it out, and it says it's white with leprosy. God says, put it back in your pocket. He puts it back in his pocket, and it comes out, and it's healed. And they have this back and forth battle. And Moses just continually brings up excuses and continually says, God, it's not me. I'm not your man. I can't do it. And, I, you know, and it's like, and we read that story and we think, man, if God would speak to me from a burning bush and my cane would turn into a snake and my hand would turn into leprosy and then heal again and all of this stuff, I think I would be too scared not to listen right? I mean, how can Moses be so dumb? And yet I want you to know something. God has spoken to lots of us. I believe God has spoken to a lot of you in very clear ways. And you're still running. And you're just like Moses. And you're still throwing out excuses. So all of this has happened, right? And we pick up the story in verse 10. After all this has happened, the hand, the staff, God tells them about the water turning into blood and all of those things, the burning bush. They've had this conversation. Exodus 4.10, Moses said to the Lord, "O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in my past, nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Oh, it's just an amazing story. This is Moses. And then God responds. And at this point, God is getting angry with Moses. And he's beginning to lose his patience, and he's beginning to be frustrated. The Lord said to Moses, who gave man his mouth? In other words, Moses, who created your mouth? Who gave you your mouth? Who are you to say that you can't speak? Who are you to say that you can't do what I've asked you to do? Who gave you his mouth? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will speak and will teach you what to say. The first person that God uses in our outline today is he uses the insecure. He uses the insecure. Moses was incredibly insecure. Moses doubted greatly that he could do what God wanted him to do. He fought it. He argued with God. He continued to push back. He argued to the point where God got angry. God uses the insecure. And the question for you this morning maybe is this, is what does God ask you to do? Seriously, what does God ask you to do? And you are so insecure, you're so scared that you might fail. You think you're not adequate, you don't have what it takes, and I just want to tell you something. You have everything that you need to do everything that God has asked you to do. There's a verse that speaks to that, and I'm not even sure where it's at right now. But it's, that's not just pastors saying it, it's biblical. You have everything that you need. To do everything that God has asked you to do. You don't need to be insecure. You don't need to doubt. You don't need to throw out all these excuses. Because when you look at Scripture, God uses people that are incredibly insecure. He uses people that feel like they're very, very weak. You know what? I'll share something um, that's—maybe some of you won't believe this, and it's okay— But every Sunday, and I can say this completely honestly, every Sunday I battle with some level of insecurity about getting up here. And you may say, you know what, you're crazy. You get up there and you do it, and it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. Every Sunday I'm backstage somewhere, and I get on my face, and I say, God, would you bail me out just one more Sunday? Just bail me out one more Sunday. Just show up one more time, because every Sunday, I feel like if God doesn't show up, you guys may never come back. That's the honest truth. And God uses people that are insecure. So when you see people, I and mean, if you see me up front, or whatever you see other people doing everything, just because it appears like they're confident, just because it appears like they know what they're doing— doesn't mean that they're secure. It doesn't mean that everything is just rosy. God uses insecure, inadequate people. Moses was one of them. We find another story that's an amazing story. God sends Samuel. The Israelites are kind of complaining and they want a king because all of the other countries and all of the other nations around them have a king and have someone to look up to. And so God calls Samuel and says, I want you to go, and I want you to find this family, Jesse's family, and I want you to anoint one of his sons king. Samuel makes a trip, finds Jesse and his sons, and he walks into the house, and he sees this one son. Verse 6. Samuel saw Elab and thought, surely the Lord... Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Then he says the most amazing thing. This is God speaking. He says, The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Samuel sees this guy, and I don't know what he looked like. I don't know if he just kind of fit the bill. it was the first guy, and Samuel says, Surely this is the son that I'm going to anoint king of Israel. And God says, No, that's not him. He may look like he fits the part. He may kind of meet some of the qualifications, but it's not the guy I want. And Samuel says, Okay, bring your next son. Jesse brings in his second son. God says, No, that's not the one. He brings in his third son. God says, No, that's not the one. The fourth, the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh. And every time God turns to Samuel or talks to Samuel, however it was, says, no, that's not the one. And there's no more boys. And Samuel says, wait a minute, do you, is this all of your sons? And Jesse's kind of like, well, you know what? I do have one more son. I didn't even ask him to come to the house because I was sure he wasn't the one. His name is David. He's, he's taking care of our sheep. And Samuel says, well, bring him." And so here comes David. The overlooked one, the one that none of his family or Samuel thought was going to be done. And he walks in and God says, That's my man. I'm going to use him. He's going to be one of the greatest men in all of Scripture and do amazing things for me. God uses, number two, God uses the unlikely. God uses the unlikely. Samuel walked into the setting and he looked at the outward appearance. He looked at qualifications or whatever it was. And God just simply said this. Listen to me. I don't look at outward appearance. I don't look at performance. I don't look at what first meets the eye, but I look inside of a person and I look at their heart. And I make my choices and my decisions on who I call and who I want to do amazing things for me based on their heart, not by outward appearance. So if you're here today and you feel like the unlikely choice, if you, if you feel like the person that's always been overlooked, if you feel like the person that's kind of left out on the pasture tending sheep, God may have something in mind for you. Work on your character. Work on your heart. God uses the unlikely. And number three is God uses the broken. We know this story, and we know it pretty well. Again, it's one of the most fascinating stories, heartbreaking in some ways in all of Scripture. But we all know who Peter is. Peter's kind of like this, you know, you would think of him as kind of the wild, outspoken, off, you know, kind of off-the-cuff, fly-by-the-city-your-pants disciple. And he was just just raring to go. And he was the one that every time Jesus would talk about dying on a cross— And all of the things that were going to happen, Peter was the one that spoke up. And Jesus would say things like, people are going to deny me, and you guys are going to walk away from me. And Jesus would say, no, wait a minute. I'll never, I'll never, Jesus, I'll never, ever deny you. I'll never walk away from you. I'll always be by your side. I'll fight for you. You can count on me. This was Peter. And we know how the story goes. Luke 22 we pick up the story and right before these verses Jesus is arrested and Peter according to scripture is kind of following along at a different or at a distance and they walk into some type of a courtyard and they take Jesus over to one side or they take him somewhere and Peter kind of sneaks in because there's a fire in the middle of the courtyard and he sits around this fire and he's just kind of there and he's observing and this girl looks over at peter and kind of catches he catches her attention and and she says no aren't you part of this whole jesus thing don't you know jesus this guy that we just arrested and peter looks at her and says i don't know the guy and some more time passes some more time goes on and somebody else looks at peter And they said, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? Didn't you walk with him and go with him as he traveled and do things with him? And Peter said, no, I never knew that guy. I have no idea who he is. I'm just kind of here. I'm just here watching. I'm just kind of here seeing what's, what's going on. I don't even know him. And like two days before, he swore that he had never betrayed Jesus. And then a third time. This is where we pick up the story. A third time somebody asked him. Peter replied, "Man, I don't even I don't know what you're talking about." It's a third time. And then I want you to I want you to and if you can feel the drama and feel what's happening in this story. Here is Peter, one of Jesus' personal friends, not just a follower but a personal friend of Jesus had swore his allegiance to Jesus. The third time, he denies Jesus, his friend, his savior. He says, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And I can imagine that Peter's like, And then I think Peter must have turned and he must have looked in Jesus' direction. And it says in verse 61, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Now I want to know that's a broken man. And I would bet you any amount of money that at this point in Peter's life, he thought it was over. I would bet you anything at this point in Peter's life, he thought my story with Jesus Christ, my ability to be used by the Savior of the world, by the man that I love, by the man that I promised I would follow, is over. Peter was broken and rightly so he had just screwed up big time Peter had just sinned Peter had just done the worst that a person could do to his personal Lord and Savior broken denied Jesus three times And here's what I think is so true of you and me. You know, there's a reason that is in Scripture. That story's not just in Scripture to be a story, and we read it and say, man, that's incredible. I can't believe Peter did that. You know why that story is there? That story is there for you, and it's there for me. It's there for those of us that have royally messed up. It's there for those of us who have made big mistakes. It's there for those of us that have felt like my story with God, my ability to be used by my heavenly Father, by the creator of the universe, is over with. I'm disqualified. God can never work with me again. I'm just going to be in the background. I'm just going to be one of the crowd. I'm going to be average or below average. And then I want to finish this story of Peter's. You know how quickly Peter was restored? In a matter of days. Who did Jesus use to preach on the day of Pentecost? He used Peter. And Peter stood up and he preached to thousands of people. And to this date, it was the greatest move of the Holy Spirit and of God. Over 3,000 people accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior and were baptized in one setting. This was the guy that had just denied Jesus three times, days before, and went outside and had wept bitterly and had crushed Jesus' heart. This is a guy that then a couple days later turned to Peter and said, On you, on you, you will be my rock. On this rock, on you, Peter, I will build my church. And we know the story of Peter went on to be one of the greatest men of all time, wrote lots of the books in the New Testament. Peter became an incredible man of God. And I'm telling you, God uses broken people. He uses broken people. Which means this, God can use you, and God can use me. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you're doing. God has a plan. And God wants to and will use you if you'll let him. God specializes, in fact, in using broken people. even know in the story of david you know it says at one point in the scripture that david was a man after god's own heart and we know that somewhere something went wrong in david's life and he wasn't he didn't stay where he needed to be and he didn't do what he needed to be and i guarantee it was over a period of time one day he ends up on the roof of his of his house sees a woman takes her as his own wife sleeps with her she's married gets her pregnant freaks out, doesn't know what to do to cover his sin. He murders her husband. So all of a sudden we have a man that is a man after God's own heart, commits adultery, He commits murder. And he's a man after God's own heart. God restores him. God uses him. God uses the broken. God uses the insecure. People who learn that they don't have what it takes, but God has what it takes. People who learn to lean on him. People who learn to trust in him. God uses the unlikely. God looks at the heart, not at the outward appearance. And number three, God uses the broken. And I just wrote in here, God uses the forgiven. God uses people that are under his grace are washed in his blood. That leads us to this question. What does God want to do through you? What does God want to do through you specifically? And here's the thing. No one can answer that question except for you. I can't answer that question. Your wife can't answer that question. She can help. Your husband can't answer that question. Only you can answer answer that question. What does God want to do through you? Because we've already established this fact, that God wants to do something through you that you're not an accident, that you're here for a reason. What does God want to do through you? Well, here's what you have to do. You have to step out to find out. You have to step out to find out. Listen, you're never going to find out if you continue to live your Christian life in a recliner. You're never going to find out what God wants you to do is if you're just comfortable and you're living the lazy boy life. You're not going to find out. God's never going to come and yank you out of that chair and say, here's my plan. Here's exactly what I want you to do. God is not probably going to show up to you in literally a burning bush. And for some of us, that wouldn't even get our attention because it didn't get Moses. But what it is going to take is for some of us to get out of the lazy boy chair, to step out of the boat, and to actually try to walk on water that's scary. Look at this look at this story. Matthew 14. Peter is in a boat, they see this guy walking on the water, it's storming. And Jesus says, "Don't be scared." Right? Now this which is kind of a crazy statement. It's storming, they're in a boat, they're scared to death. Not only that, there's somebody walking on the water and Jesus says, "Don't worry about it. Don't be afraid." Peter said, cuz he said, "This is me. It's it's Jesus." Verse 28, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you in the water. Jesus replied, come. He said, then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. Here's what I want you to ask yourself. If you would have been there that day, if you would have been in that setting, What if you had the faith and the courage to step out of the boat and to walk on the water? (laughs) We we know what happens in the story. Peter starts walking, literally walking on the water, and he takes a few steps. And it's almost like Peter's like, "Wow, I can't believe I'm doing this. And he takes his eyes off of Jesus, and he begins to sink. And you know what we often do as we read this story is we kind of criticize Jesus. And when we criticize Peter, we're like, he should have kept his eyes on Jesus. I mean, what was he thinking? You can't walk on water if you don't keep your eyes on Jesus. Right? And the reality is, how many of us would have never got out of the boat? Give him credit for what he did. Most of us, I would venture to say, would have said, know he said come but I i'm not sure i heard him right did he actually say step out of the boat and walk on the water what does he think i am and maybe we should criticize the remaining disciples that were still in the boat what were they doing what were they doing and here's what's awesome Peter, although he did sink, is the only man that we know of besides Jesus who ever walked on water. And can you imagine the stories, and I know this is just kind of a side note, but I love stuff like this. Can you imagine the story that Peter was telling his grandchildren? And he said, you're not going to believe what happened to me one day. Jesus asked me to step out of the boat. I stepped out of the boat, and I walked. And here's my question to you guys. Where do you want to be one day at the end of your life? What stories, what memories do you want to have when you're sitting, rightly so, in your recliner? And you kick your feet up and you reflect. Because I'm telling you, when you get really old, that's what you spend the bulk of your time doing is is reflecting. That's what my dad does. That's what my grandpa did. I've seen it. And they sit there, and they remember, and they think back. And I don't know about you, but I know about myself, is when I'm 90 years old, I'm planning to live a long time. Maybe 100, I don't know. But I want to sit there, and I want to think back, and I want to say, you know what? I made a mess out of some stuff, but I got out of the boat. I stepped out, and I found out when Jesus said to step out of the boat and walk on water, I just went for it. I'd be willing to bet that there's some of you here today that if you're honest, you would say, yep, you know what, there's a place and there's something in my life where I need to just step out of the boat and I need to trust him. Let me pray with you.